They were watching television in their Cairo apartment when they heard the front door open. The two sisters quickly got up, rushed to turn off the television. Another brother stood up. Their mother put on a pleading face as Khalid stormed into the room. His eyes were wide. His face was red. You could feel the tension in the air. It's like all of the wind had just been sucked out of the room. Khalid walked over to the television and put his hand on the back of the picture tube, and he was furious. I told you this was trash. How can you watch this heresy? He struck both sisters in the face. He pushed his mother down onto the floor and then lunged the television across the room. Khalil had been training in the desert with an offshoot of the Islamic Brotherhood. His training as a sniper in the event that the struggle would require a call to arms. His zeal for God was absolute. He was prepared to fight for the honor of religion, to fight, and he was prepared to die. He was prepared to kill. And upon hearing the arrest recently of Christian missionaries in Cairo who were accused of trying to convert the weak and elderly Muslims in a hospital to Christianity, his rage was swift. Death to the infidels, he thought. God is great. He was furious at the humiliation. This was during the month of Ramadan, a holy time. Khalil wanted violent confrontation, but his emir instead proposed something else. He said, study their religion, study the book of the Christians, and show the people the falsehood within it. Make a logical confrontation. Prove that it's false and Khalil heard this from his emir. His emir was pleading with him. He was angered by it. He didn't want to read a Christian Bible. He didn't want to write a book about it. He wanted to fight because God's laws were being trampled. God's honor was being impugned, even in his own family, with their lack of zeal, their love of Western television, their love of worldly ways. Khalil was angry, and he wanted to destroy the Christians. He was a lot like a man we're going to read about from the book of Acts today. Also a religious extremist. Also an angry man. Also controlling. A Pharisee of Pharisees, he says, of that most strict of Jewish sects. His name was Shaul Paulus of Tarsus, known today as the Apostle Paul. We're going to read about his encounter with Jesus. It's Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 to 19. If you want, in your pew Bible, it's page 1706, or you can look at the wall. Acts chapter 9, this is God's word. Meanwhile, Saul, or in Hebrew, Shaul, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is, the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. 
Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind. He didn't eat or drink anything. And in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house, and he entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. What do we see here? What we see is that the gospel has come to a Pharisee. How do I know if I'm a Pharisee? See, Pharisees were an actual historical movement within Judaism in the first century. They were the most faithful of the Jews. They were most careful to obey the laws of Moses in the first five books of the the Torah of the Bible. They were the ones who accepted the words of the prophets. They're the ones who were preparing in their hearts for the coming of the Messiah, of the Christ, by by faithfully and dutifully obeying the law of God. They were were the original legalists. Uh, And psychologically, the dynamics, even though Pharisaism as a religious movement formally Uh, no longer exists except perhaps among some ultra-Orthodox Jewish groups uh, in Brooklyn uh, and and in Palestine. But uh, still, the dynamics are still there, the spiritual dynamics of the Pharisee. We're going to look at what that is. How do you know if you're a Pharisee, maybe with a lowercase p? How do you know? Well, first, by looking at Paul's example You will know if you're a Pharisee because you will have very strong opinions about lots of things. Maybe not about everything, but about a lot of things. Uh, You see that with Paul. You see that with the historical record of the Pharisees. Pharisees, you know, they had answers to most questions. Uh, they, 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 They always knew that there was one right way to do things, very black and white thinking. They, they, there's one right way to manage your finances. There's one right way to drive. There's one right way you should speak in a certain situation. There's really one right way that you should dress. There's really one right way you should vote. There's really one right way to raise your kids. I'd love to sit you down and tell you what that is so that you could do it. 
there's really one right posture in corporate worship. There's really one right style of music. There's really one right anything. You can be a Pharisee about absolutely anything, but what Pharisees can't do, if you have a little Pharisee inside of you, what you may find it very hard to do is when you have a strong opinion about something, to see somebody who has the opposite opinion and to look at them and say, and that is a perfectly valid conclusion to come to. That's a perfectly valid way of doing it. It's not my way, but I, I kind of come to different views, but, but that's perfectly valid. I remember one person I knew who had spent weeks and months researching buying a new mattress for his bed. And he had, he had analyzed every website, read everything. He had conclusively absorbed all of the relevant data about mattresses and concluded that there was one right mattress that everybody should get. And I just looked at it and I thought, I found my first mattress Pharisee. It was fascinating. <laughs> you know, but I look at myself. When I was new to Christianity, gosh, some of you knew me then. I had really strong opinions. I assumed most things were black and white. I remember in college getting into endless arguments with people, especially with Michelle Kenyon, because she didn't see things right on all sorts of things. And we would just argue endlessly because I was right, and I knew I was right, and I wanted her to understand that I was right and that she was therefore wrong. Uh, you know, I, I, I think there were people who knew not to, not, to, not to get too close to me, not to bring up certain topics. I think there were people who figured that I was probably a pretty angry guy, And uh, I was pretty insensitive to those with whom I differed. I had zeal. I was a brand new Christian. I had passion about my beliefs, but I was was very much a Pharisee, very opinionated. A Pharisee has strong opinions and, and notices how other people fail. That's the first thing. You know you're a Pharisee if you have really strong opinions about things and, and, and you really notice others who are wrong. Uh, second thing that might indicate that you're a Pharisee is that you're going to look down on those who are wrong in your view. You're going to look down on those who don't value what you value. That's what we see Paul doing. He values obedience to the Mosaic law, and he's found a group of Jews, still at this point, pretty much all Jews except for one Ethiopian eunuch, on his, and he was on his way back to Africa by now. So, yeah, but these Jews who, who weren't valuing it the way he thought they should value it, they were instead valuing something different, this Jewish leader, Jesus, who they were then even worshiping. And, and, and he got really angry about that. Uh, it's the dynamic you see is that you look down on those who lack what you value. Uh, that can look like a lot of different things. If you, if you are a political Pharisee, then there are people with different perspectives that you're going to look down on. You're going to think they're stupid. They're idiots. They're fools. They're what's wrong with the world. They could be up to your right. They could be to your left. There are liberal Pharisees. There are conservative Pharisees. There are libertarian Pharisees. There are, I'm not really political. I'm, I'm so much better than all that Pharisees. They come in every flavor. You know, you can't get away from it. And, and so you get angry at people. You, you, you see things on the news and you've got to change the channel. You fume and you think how much better the world would be without those people. And you realize that's a sign of a spiritual cancer inside of you that's eating you away. It's gnawing at your soul. It's been doing it for years. How do you get rid of it? We're going to talk about that. But how do you know you're a Pharisee? Well, yeah, you're going to have really strong opinions about things, but you're also going to look down on those who differ with you. If you're a theological Pharisee, you're going to look down on people who don't hold to the same theological convictions you do because you think that you're better because you're building your identity on your, 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 your theology instead of Jesus. Uh, if you're a parenting Pharisee, 
Ah, some of you have encountered that. Some of you have been that. Some of you are recovering from that. But you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna really uh, 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 get frustrated with people who raise their children differently than you think that God's calling you to raise your children. Uh, if you're a worship Pharisee, you're going to get really fighting mad when worship feels a little different or looks a little different than what you think it should be. Uh, and that can be a liturgical uh, 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 Pharisaism. That could be a, you know, overhead projector, hands in the air Pharisee. It's all different kinds. It could be a let's sit and, and, and do our Baptist air conditioning, flipping the pages of our Bible while he preaches, going back and forth for 57 different passages kind of Pharisee. But, but if you're a worship Pharisee, you're going to get really frustrated and angry when worship is different. If you're a cultural Pharisee, you may look down on those who you see as unsophisticated or uneducated. You're going to call them Hoosiers, even though they're not from Indiana. Um, so that's a second thing. A third thing, if you're a Pharisee, uh, you're going to be angry a lot. That's something you see. Paul is fuming mad here. Uh, that's, and that's tied in with the Pharisaism. Anger is one of the key emotional expressions of judgment. It's not only an expression of judgment, but when the judgment is there, it usually expresses itself as anger. You may have a very short fuse and you blow up, or you may have a very long fuse that just simmers under the surface all the time, but it's always down there somewhere. It's all, you're always feeling it because people are disobeying your rules or they're getting away with something. It's another sign that you may be a Pharisee. Fourth one. Uh, you can't just share your perspective if you're a Pharisee and then drop it. You will feel a need to control other people, to make them see things your way. You may seek to do this through politics on the left, the right, or the middle so that you can force everyone to think the way you think and see things your way. You may be that nagging relative who can never just drop it. They, they always have to have the last word, and you, you try to draw it to a close, and they, they talk again, and you try to draw it to a close and, because they're trying to control you. They're needing you to see it their way to validate themselves. Because when you're a Pharisee, you have to do that. You can't just say, let's agree to disagree. You can't just say, oh, that's your perspective. That's great. My perspective's different. No. You may use your anger to control. You may use criticism. You may use your money you may use your words, you may use your relationships, pulling close or pulling away in order to punish people, but you're always having to control, to see it your way. Uh, and so people will ex ex experience you as, as controlling. I mean, notice how controlling Paul is. At this point, he's, he's, he's gone over their heads to try to get official sanction from Jerusalem to go persecute. He's making threats against people. He's jailing people. I mean, this is a very controlling stuff. So, summary. I think we have a slide, if you want, for this diagnostic. Um, you might be a Pharisee if you have really strong opinions about a lot of things. And you tend to look down on those who don't share your opinions. And you're angry a lot. And people around you experience you as controlling. Those are the four that we see in the text. Thank you. That's good. So, maybe you're all capital letters Pharisee. Maybe you're a small letters italics Pharisee. But if you're like me, you're seeing some area in your heart right now where you are a Pharisee. So, how can you break free of being a Pharisee? Well, that's a difficult thing to answer. Um, I mean, the, the answer is not all that difficult, but the answer is really difficult because to break free of your Pharisaism, you have to get knocked off your horse. That's what happened to Paul. 
happened quite literally. Jesus knocked him off his, his horse, blinded him completely, took away any sense that he was in control. You have to come to a place of personal brokenness where I know I am the biggest sinner in the room. I'm not the solution. I'm the problem. And I can't fix it. And I have no option except to surrender this to Jesus. Something has to to happen in order to, to show you that, in order to bring you to that point of brokenness where you realize you're the sinner, that you can't fix it, and that you have no option but surrender. So you can't see Jesus as a side project that will help you get this pharisaical little area under control. Because the problem is, is you've got to give up the control. Jesus doesn't offer to be your personal assistant. In, in Paul's case, his entire self-righteous life project has to be brought to Jesus and laid at his feet and surrendered to him who alone is able to heal us. He had to see himself as the problem, as the one who's the sinner, who's the one who's persecuting Jesus, who's persecuting the very Son of God, the very Messiah he was preparing for, is his enemy. When you know, I am God's enemy, I have opposed him, I have violently sought to disobey him, I have disregarded him with my life, and he is rightly angry with me, and I cannot fix it, I am that broken, I am that damaged, and then Jesus, I can't do anything about it, Jesus, have mercy. That's getting knocked off your horse. Jesus says, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, before their kings, before the people of Israel. Saul didn't get any say in the matter. He was not consulted. He was just knocked off his horse and given a new life mission. And Jesus continues, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. The man who had been causing so much suffering for the followers of Jesus is to suffer for the name of Jesus. He now has to swallow that same pill for himself. That's getting knocked off your horse, seeing yourself as the biggest sinner in the room, knowing you can't fix it, and seeing Jesus as the only one who can. Now, sometimes getting knocked off your horse involves a time of personal crisis. I remember a friend of mine, you know, he thought things were going well. He thought his marriage was good. His wife wasn't always very obedient to him, but he thought things were okay until he got home from a business trip one Saturday night, and there was no furniture in their house, and there was a note on the kitchen counter saying, I'm divorcing you. Maybe it's that your career tanks. Maybe it's that God shows you your sin and gives you the ability to see how broken and damaged we are, how desperately we need Jesus. Jesus certainly showed Saul how wrong he was, but you can't be saved unless you're okay being wrong. You've got to be the big sinner in the room. You've got to get knocked off your horse. That means surrendering your own righteousness. For Paul, as you read, as we read in in Philippians, as Riley read to us, you know, he, he had spent his entire life in zeal for God. He had become a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was faultless with regard to the commandments of the Mosaic law. He, he was the most religious of the religious. He was the fundamentalist of fundamentalists. He was the extremist of extremists. He was the guy that Al-Qaeda leaders and, and Islamic State leaders look to and say, man, that guy is serious. And he then says, now I consider that garbage in order to know Jesus, not with the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness of Jesus that is a gift of God that is received through faith. He makes Saul 
helpless in this case? Did you notice how, how Jesus knocks Saul off his horse and then he leaves him blind for three days, unable to rely on himself? Here's a man who has always had the answers, who then has no answers at all. Is it, is it daylight out or is it night? Uh, is it time to eat or not? Is there food? What city am I in? Where am I? Who am I? What is going on? Who is that speaking to me now? Have you ever been truly blind? You know, we used to play this game uh, when I taught the kids catechism class where uh, in order to learn what, what it means to actually have to trust someone other than yourself, we would uh, uh, get out blindfolds and blindfold each other and you'd have one person who is blindfolded and I mean really well blindfolded. I'm not talking about a little strip. I'm talking about like you know, totally block out all light and then lead you through the church and you'd have to trust them. And it was really cute until the kids said, okay, Greg, now it's your turn. And to have an 11-year-old or a 9-year-old take you down steps blindfolded, to not know when you're going to walk into a wall, to not know if you're going straight down the middle or if you're at an angle and will eventually hit a, a projecting water fountain and you just have to trust them, it's, it's emotionally very disruptive. It's a very hard thing. Everything you trust in is taken from you, and that's exactly where Jesus wanted Paul. It's where Jesus wants you and me, where we aren't relying on what we've always assumed. We aren't relying on our own devices. We're learning to be dependent on someone else. Saul, the religious scholar with all the answers, having to learn from followers of Jesus everything over again from scratch, from the very beginning, having to rethink everything he's always believed in. Saul has to give up his righteousness. He has to give up his self-reliance. You know, whatever you build your life on other than Jesus ultimately turns you into a Pharisee. If you build your identity on your religious zeal and your faithfulness to God, then you will look down on those who lack religious zeal and you will think they're not serious enough about their Christianity and you will despise them and you will become Pharisee. If you build your identity on your political perspective, you will look down on those who differ from you and you will despise them and you will become the Pharisee. If you build your identity on your wealth, you will look down on those who don't, finance, who don't manage their finances the way you do, and you will learn to despise them. If you build your identity on your hard work, on your professionalism, on your personal comfort, on your accomplishments, then you will begin to look down on those who lack those things. If you build your identity on your race, you will look down on those, and you will despise those who are of a different race. If you build your identity on your country, on your nation, on your patriotism, then you will begin to despise the alien, the foreigner, the stranger that Jesus calls you to self-sacrifice in order to love them. If you build your identity on being the perfect parent, you will begin to despise other parents who don't parent correctly. And above all, you will be constantly angry at your children because they're the main thing that will keep you from being the perfect parent. If you build your identity on your intelligence, you will look down on those who lack your wit, your quickness, your mind. If you build your identity on how open-minded you are, you will begin to despise anybody who ever comes to a personal conviction. You can't escape it. Whatever you value most, whatever you build your identity on, it ultimately traps you and it turns you into a scary, ugly, angry, controlling, manipulative Pharisee. We're all self-righteous about something. And Jesus is saying, you've got to give up your righteousness 
Pharisee of Pharisees, you built your identity on the observance of my law, but you are violating my law through it because it has become what you trust in instead of me, the lawgiver and savior. You've got to be the big sinner, shameful big sinner, and hand your righteousness over to me, Jesus is saying. That's getting knocked off your horse. And that's hard because that's giving up our identity, who we think we are, and and that, that can feel like dying. You say, Greg, I'm not self-righteous. I actually hate myself. I can never forgive myself. I'm such a failure. And that may be true about your self-loathing and your refusal to forgive yourself, but it's not because you failed to build your identity on your own self-righteousness, but because you've done just that. Maybe you built your identity on your worldly success, and then you failed in your business. And so now you're in despair, but the problem isn't to find a way to forgive yourself for failing in business. The way forward is to actually seek God's forgiveness for building your identity on your success in the first place. Maybe you built your identity on being a great parent, and now your kids resent you. But the path to freedom isn't to pretend that you aren't self-righteous. The path to freedom is to name the self-righteousness in which you trusted that's now dragging you down and beating you up. You have to name it. You have to deal with it. It doesn't have to keep defining you. It doesn't have to puff you up with pride when you succeed and then pull you down into a spiral of self-hatred and despair when you fail. You, you, You can't be free, though, until you name that identity, name that righteousness, name it before God, call it what God calls it, and then rip it out and kill it completely by name nailing it to the cross, and then get up the next morning and repeat every single day, putting on the righteousness of Christ, believing the gospel for yourself with a better identity because the old one has to die. It's the only way you're going to get free of that anger. It's the only way you're going to get free of that controlling impulse. It's the only way you're going to be free of the Phariseeism. Even our friend Saul went on to say that what he once considered to his prophet He now considers all of it a loss. What had been his righteous deeds, he now considers filthy rags. How is it possible? Friends, it's possible by finding a better identity. That's what we read about in Philippians 3. A righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God the Father. And that is by faith. It means taking the gospel and believing it when when Jesus says that he came to give you a new righteousness, to clothe you with his honor, what that means to have the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. It means all of your sin and all of your shame and everything that's wrong with you and the anger and the pharisaical impulse itself have all been nailed to the cross and Jesus has carried it to the cross for you and he has paid the debt for that in full and you will never be asked to bear that penalty again. It is finished, Jesus says, and yet it's more than that. It's the righteousness of Jesus that's then been credited to your account so that everything Jesus did is now to your benefit and to your credit. It means God the Father looks at your resume of your entire life and he says, I love the way you fed the 5,000. I love the way you always did what pleases me. I love the way that you raised that, that poor woman from the dead and healed all of those sick people everything Jesus did now clothing you so that you now have Christ's resume and there's nothing you're ever going to do to embellish that resume. It's the gospel. It's a better righteousness. And when Paul found that and put that on every day and and actually felt it, the release 
the joy, the freedom of being loved by God, of being okay, of never having to measure up, not having to be good enough, not having to perform, not having to be the perfect parent, not having to be successful in my business, not having to look perfect and intelligent and all of that, but just being a big sinner loved by Jesus, saved by Jesus, and accepted by the Father who now delights over you in song. When that sunk in, Paul said all that other stuff was trash. It's a better identity. Dane Ortland in Defiant Grace says it this way. He says, Christianity is the unreligion because it turns all our religious instincts on their heads. The Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. But only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failures. Christianity is the unreligion. Because it's the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. It's the only identity, the only righteousness that will lead you to love those with whom you disagree. Because your identity isn't built on your faith in God. It's built on God's mercy to you, even though we're sinners. It's the only religion that has at its center a man who dies for his enemies. All this because Jesus looked down on a Pharisee Angry, self-righteous, opinionated, and controlling. Jesus looked down on a Pharisee and he loved him because Jesus loves Pharisees. He loves the self-righteous. He loves the extremist. He loves the arrogant. And he wants to wash you and clean you and make you acceptable. And he wants you to believe the good news, which alone can set you free. As Khalil studied to refute the lies of the Christians. He came across something that at first was promising. He found minor discrepancies between different books of the Bible, between Exodus and Deuteronomy and differences in numbers, uh, between, uh, you know, First Kings and First Chronicles. But he saw that the Quran also contained these same types of differences, and so he felt like he needed more, and he read the Bible from cover to cover, and yet still didn't find what he was looking for. But as he looked at the Bible, and he saw how different the New Testament was from the Quran, how two books were moving in totally opposite directions, he began to question whether the Quran was indeed the word of God. He at first hid his doubts, but then he began putting them to paper, and then one day his emir came across his private papers and confronted him about his growing doubts in the veracity and the truthfulness of the Quran. The emir blew up at one point in a rage. He grabbed Khalil by the shoulders and began shaking him so violently that Khalil felt like his head was spinning. As Khalil continued to explain what he was learning about Christianity, the emir covered his ears and began screaming at Khalil at the heresy of what he was hearing, the unbelief. He throttled Khalil in the neck, smacked him in his face again and again. Finally, Khalil's own mother broke into the room and pulled the the emir off of her son. As Khalil turned back again to the New Testament, he read about Jesus telling him to love his enemies, to do good to those that hate you, 
to the one that strikes you on one cheek to turn to him the other. It was unlike anything he could have ever imagined that God would be like that himself. And yet for a Muslim to convert to Christianity, to become a follower of Jesus was a great dishonor. And so on his knees, Khalil pleaded with God to help him, to show yourself, to show me what is true. He cried out, if you are the God of Islam, then rid me of all of these other thoughts. But, but if you are the God of the Christians, then give me the strength to face such shame and to worship you. That night, Khalil slept more deeply than he'd ever slept in his life. And then as dawn approached, he saw a man dressed in white, blinding light. The man shone, and the man asked him in Arabic, Khalil, do you still have doubts in me? Who are you? I'm the one you've been searching for. And Khalil says he knew at once it was Esau. It was Jesus. And as Khalil awoke, he clutched his Bible, and he crawled on his knees into his mother's bedroom, he woke her as the sun was rising, and he knelt at, his feet, at her feet. Tears were, were streaming down his face. She asked him, Khalil, what is wrong? He says, Mama, you must forgive me. Mama, I thought I was following the true faith by treating you harshly. Forgive me. Let me kiss your feet. Khalil, what has happened? What has changed you? Mama, God is, is guiding me now. He is not the one I was following before. Khalil, there is only one God, Khalil. I know, Mama, but he's the true God, revealed in Christ, Esau. He has forgiven me, Mama, with all the terrible things I have done. He has died for me. Oh, Khalil, I will not disbelieve you, for never before have you treated me like this. And he embraced her, and he cried, Please forgive me, Mama. Please forgive me. The day Khalil explains what happened that night, 20 years ago, said, my heart had changed, and it was changed by love. A man known for his violence, manipulation, anger, extremism, encountered a love more extreme than anything he had ever imagined. Let's pray. Fathers, you had mercy on a Pharisee named Saul, and as you had mercy on an extremist named Khalil, I thank you, Lord, for the mercy that you've had on an arrogant guy like me. And I consecrate to you now, Lord, the elements on this table, that you would preach the gospel to us, that we would be clothed in the righteousness of your Son with the freedom and joy of knowing that we don't have to perform anymore. We don't have to measure up anymore. We don't have to categorize people into good guys and bad guys anymore because there's just a bunch of sinners made in your image and loved by you loved by Jesus. We thank you for that. In the name of the Son of God, we pray. Amen.